Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here at Northside, along with those who are joining us online. I'm Bill Birch, one of the pastors here. And as Catherine mentioned during the pastoral prayer this past week, our lay delegates and clergy have been at annual conference in Athens. It's the first time we've been able to gather in three years, and it was a time of mixed emotion, but like a family reunion gathering together again. On Friday, my wife Tracy called and said, is there anything going on at conference I need to know? And I said, well, I don't think so. Why? She said, well, a realtor just put a really big for sale sign in front of the parsonage. <laughs> we made a few phone calls. Turned out it was supposed to be 565 East Wesley rather than West Wesley. But for a moment, I thought maybe somebody had staged a coup while I was gone. Well, today I am excited to begin our summer worship series. It's entitled, Blessed to be a Blessing. And during June and July, we're going to be exploring a very familiar passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus declares eight blessings or beatitudes upon God's people. And I'm going to be excited to see what we discover. Next week, we're looking at the first beatitude. Today, we're looking at the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount. Earlier in the year, during our Route 66 journey through the New Testament, we read the Gospel according to Matthew. And you may recall the first two chapters deal with Jesus' childhood and infancy. And then the author skips ahead over 20 years and introduces John the Baptist. And the prophet appears in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The first introduction we have of Jesus as an adult is him standing on the shores of the River Jordan asking John to baptize him. John wants to deter him, but Jesus insists, and he wades down into the water surrounded by sinners. And I want you to freeze that frame for a moment and think about this. The sinless Son of God receiving a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. It's a microcosm of the gospel that God became who we are so that we might become who God is. The sinless Son of God taking upon himself our sins so that we might be forgiven. Then immediately... The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and nights. He's tempted by the devil, but responds with Scripture. And then he emerges from the desert and begins his public ministry, declaring, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew chapter 5 represents Jesus' first major sermon recorded in Matthew and today we hear the introduction of the sermon in verses 1 through 12. As you're able, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the gospel. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. And would you please be seated. In 2019, a group from Northside Church visited the Holy Land. And on a beautiful spring day, we went to the Mount of Beatitudes on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It is the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. And for over 1,600 years, Christian pilgrims have sanctified that place with their visits and with their prayers. At the top of the mountain is an octagonal Roman Catholic church. And the eight sides represent the eight Beatitudes. And the site is overseen by the Franciscan Missionary Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And let me tell you, they don't play. They put the fear of God into any visitor that comes through that gate. And our group sat in the courtyard... And we read the scripture lesson that we have heard today. And then we had some time just to wander the grounds and to meditate upon Jesus' words and their meaning in our lives. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of five major discourses preached by Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. And as we work our way through the series, a lot of these passages and verses are going to be very familiar to you. But their very familiarity sometimes disguises their revolutionary nature. Because Jesus makes a series of outlandish, earth-shaking statements. He describes the radical nature of Christian discipleship, and he culminates with this call, Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if we truly hear Jesus' words today, that challenge seems overwhelming. But I want to revisit a detail in the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5. The gospel writer tells us, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. That detail is significant. While the crowds gather around and also hear Jesus' words, he is not telling the multitudes how you get into the kingdom of God. He's not saying, do all of these things, and then God will favor you, forgive you, and save you. He's not describing a works righteousness. That was the mistake the religious leaders of his time had made. They thought if you could just take the Bible, boil it down to a series of do's and don'ts, and follow them religiously, then God owed you and would favor you and would save you. Instead, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, the one who heard that original call 
repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. And they gave their lives to God and entered into God's kingdom and salvation. And now, Jesus is describing how you live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Not to gain God's favor, but in response to God's favor. And that's a critical distinction because one feels like a burden and the other is freedom. That as we have been saved, we are now freed up to be the people God created us to be. One of the books I'm using throughout the series is written by a Roman Catholic priest named Father Jacques Philippe. It's entitled, The Eight Doors of the Kingdom. And he points out that the Beatitudes in particular and the Sermon on the Mount in general is not only a handbook for Christian discipleship, it's also a portrait of Jesus Christ. That when you read all these different characteristics, they describe our Lord. And if you think about it for a moment, that makes sense. Because we call ourselves Christian. Christian means Christ-like. It means little Christ. If Jesus is describing what the Christian lifestyle looks like, then of course he is describing himself as well. Because our prayer is that we're made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And our Lord begins a sermon with eight blessings or beatitudes. And listen to them again in short. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Do you see how Jesus is taking the world's values and turning them upside down so that they're now right side up? Part of what we'll discover in the coming weeks is that every beatitude has three elements. There's the declaration of blessing, blessed are. There's a group who is blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then there is the result of that blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to focus in on that word blessed or blessed for a moment. It comes from a Greek word, makarios. And I've shared with you before, despite a desire to show off my seminary education, I discovered long ago very few people care what the Greek or Hebrew word is. But makarios is an important term because it gets translated in different ways into English. It can be blessed, oh the bliss, oh the supreme blessing, the fortunate, the favored, and happy. And many modern translations tend to use the word happy. But the root word of happy is hap, which means luck, fortune, chance, or fate. And it gives us words like happen, and happenstance. And scripturally and theologically, I have a lot of problems with translating the word makarios as happy. Because happy is based upon the circumstances of the world that ultimately we cannot control. And happiness becomes just kind of a gamble that a bookie wouldn't give good odds on. 
there's a group that's called the Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Never heard of them before, found, came across them in sermon research. Every year they produce the World Happiness Report. It's based on Gallup polls. People self-rate how happy they are. And it might not surprise you that year after year, Nordic and European countries are at the very top. Number one for five years is Finland. Security, health, wealth, all those different factors we think of as happiness. But if you delve into other reports, you will discover that Finland often ranks at the very top of levels of depression and of suicide as well. Happiness is not what the world tells us it is. And I believe happiness and blessedness are two different realities. Blessedness is based upon an internal relationship with Jesus Christ that the circumstances of the world about us cannot affect. It is a spiritual, eternal reality different from anything that the world can give or can take away. It is the bliss of knowing we are God's and God is ours. It is that sweet spot in life where we are living the way God called us to live and we are assuming the identity of the people God created us to be, that in God's mind the perfect person, you and I, that God made us to be, that's what we're living into. And the people of God's blessing feel that bliss. And I love Sarah's uh, imagery of, of being hugged by God and Gosh, God's smelling our hair. I do that all the time with my grandchild and kissing the top of our heads. That's what it means to be blessed. But I also want to remind you of the title of the series. It's not simply the blessed. The title of the series is Blessed to Be a Blessing. And those who have taken Disciple Bible Study or other Bible studies may recognize the origin of the title. It comes from Genesis chapter 12, where God enters into a covenant or relationship with the very first patriarch, Abram, and makes a series of promises to this man who becomes known as Abraham. And in part says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I love this dynamic motion you see in this relationship with Abraham. God doesn't bless Abram just to be blessed. God blesses Abraham so that he, in turn, might be a blessing to others. That he would lead what would eventually become known the people of Israel that they would share that covenant with the world, they would become the vehicle through which the Messiah, the Christ, came to save you and come to save me. And we see that Abraham is blessed to be a blessing, as are we. When you're on the top of the Mount of Beatitudes, you look down and you see the Sea of Galilee, and it's just a, a beautiful pastoral scene. And if you've ever looked at those maps in the back of your Bible, you know at the south end of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River exits and runs south, and it's a traditional border of Israel. And it eventually empties into what is known as the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. And the reason it's called the Salt Sea is that it has no outlet. 
And so the hot desert sun shines down on the body of water. The moisture evaporates and leaves the minerals behind. And one of the featured moments in any Holy Land trip is allowing people to wade down into the salt sea through the mud and swim in the water. It is so thick, you cannot force yourself underneath. You bob like a cork. And it's called the Dead Sea because it is so filled with salinity and other minerals that nothing can live within it. And it's a graphic parable and portrait of the Christian life that has no outlet, that receives blessing, but does not share those blessings with others in turn. You see, we receive in order to give, that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. That's what it means to be the body of Jesus Christ for one another and for the world. And so as Jesus describes all these different blessings that God grants his people, It's not an end in and of itself. It's so that we can share it with others in turn. And to make this point, Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount with a parable that's variously known as the parable of the two builders or the parable of the wise and foolish builder. Jesus gives the punchline away at the start of the story. He says, the person who hears and does my word... It's like somebody who builds a house on bedrock. And when the storms rise and the wind blows, the house stands firm. The person who hears my word and does not do it is like a foolish builder who builds his house on sand. And when the winds rise and the waves come, the house crashes. The two people both heard Jesus' word. One did it, one did not. So as we move through this series, I want you for a few moments to use your divinely inspired imagination, and I want you to see the scene of the Sermon on the Mount. There's Jesus seated at the top. His disciples are gathered around him. And then there are the crowds and the multitudes who have also assembled. We know out of that inner group of disciples, there was even a more intimate band of Peter, James, and John that were with Jesus in some of the most intimate moments of his ministry. Suppose that imagery is not only a description of the scene that day, but also our relationship with God. Christian discipleship is like a funnel, wide at the top that narrows towards the bottom. And of course, our desire as a church is to get people involved in the top of the funnel, but then to enable them to move deeper and deeper in their relationship with God. And the motion of Christian discipleship is to move from the periphery to the middle to become closer and closer and closer to Jesus. And my prayer is that is what this series will enable us to do in the days to come. We are also aware that sometimes the motion is in the opposite direction. That people who are once close to Jesus, slowly, oftentimes without conscious decision, find themselves moving further and further away. We see it in the church all the time. 
We see people who bring their babies to be baptized, and I'm always awed at the promises a parent makes when they bring that child before God and congregation. And yet, at least for some of them, we know we will not see them for a while. I watch as people join the church and promise to support the church with prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. And yet we're aware on any given Sunday, we only have a percentage of people involved in the life of the church. We see parents who make sure their children are here for confirmation experience for an entire school year. And yet we know we won't see some of those youth again until Senior Sunday. There's always the decision, do we move further away or do we move closer in? And the reality is, you know, we think our spiritual journey is ever upward and onward. But if I trace mine, it's forward and backward and it's sideways. And sometimes I get so involved in what's going on right in front of me that I forget who I'm supposed to be following. Where are you in your relationship with Jesus? Where do you want to be? Where does God want you to be? Are you a more mature disciple today than you were a year ago? Five years ago? Ten years ago? This series gives us an opportunity to see the portrait of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and day by day dedicate ourselves to walk in his footsteps because we are blessed and in turn we're called to be a blessing to others. Let us pray. Almighty God, call us out of the cares of this world and call us closer to you. Call us out of fear and anxiety and call us closer to you. Call us out of consumerism and materialism and call us closer to you. Call us out of tribulation and temptation and call us closer to you. Call us from our self-absorption of such overcommitted and busy calendars and call us closer to you. Lord, grant us the grace to walk in your footsteps and draw ever nearer to you to be Christian, to be Christ-like, to be little Christs in our lives. It's in the name of our Savior we make our prayer. Amen.